podcast is brought to you by LMU Munich. Well, thank you, Hannes, for those kind words. I wish I could be there. I know this is a lovely time of year to be in Munich. And um, I remember very fondly the time I spent there as a Humboldt stipendiat back in the early 1970s. Um, but as it happens, I have family obligations that keep me at this end, on this side of the pond. Uh, but I hope that travel will be possible in the near future. Well, thank you for asking me to address your group today. My title, as you can see, is Core Logic. And the reason for calling it Core Logic will emerge as we proceed. I should say that this is a logical system which I've been working on for about 30, 35 years now, and I'm finally satisfied with the form in which I have it. Um, I'd like to just remind colleagues of the strictly classical negation rules that we have in the natural deduction presentation of um, logic. Uh, there are four of them. There's classical reductio ad absurdum, which uh, says that you can conclude to phi if you can prove absurdity from phi and thereby discharge the assumption not phi. Then we have the law of excluded dual, which simply says it's an axiom coming from no premises at all that either phi or not phi, the line over it indicates that there are no premises above it. Uh, the rule of dilemma says that you can infer phi independently, uh, psi independently of phi and independently of not phi, where those are the positive and negative assumptions for the horns of the dilemma. So you assume phi, prove psi, then you assume not phi, prove psi. Um, you can then infer psi and discharge your case assumptions. This is obviously like uh, an or elimination with the absent or invisible premise of the law excluded middle, phi or not phi. And finally, we have double negation elimination. Not not phi, therefore phi. I'd like to pause at this point. Can you all hear me quite clearly? Can you can all hear me quite clearly? Okay. No echoing or positive feedback from the microphone pickup? Good. Okay. So now there's the intuitionistic rule known as ex falso quad libet, or the absurdity rule which says basically that from absurdity you may infer any proposition you like. One is familiar with the, the rival systems to classical logic. They are all subclassical logics. They are proper subsystems of classical logic. Uh, but we begin with the question, is there one correct logic? And the absolutist is the one who says yes, there's one correct logic. The pluralist says no. Note I'm giving more space to the absolutist because that's where the truth lies. The next question, is this one correct logic classical? The quietist says yes. Someone like Peter Strauss, for example, or an average classical mathematician. And the reformist says no. Once again, the reformist gets uh, more space and 
color red because that's where the truth lies. Is the logic constructed? The intuitionist says yes, and uh, the non-constructivist says no. Finally, is the logic relevant? If you say no, you remain a straightforward intuitionist of the Brouwer-hating variety. If you say yes is relevant, then you are a core logician. Uh, welcome to the camp. Now, someone tried to be a core logician, and that was Johansson with his Minimalkalkül. And I want to argue that that was actually a mistaken execution of the intention to be intuitionistic relevantist. Here is the classical system. Think of this uh, rectangle as including uh, all classically valid arguments. So they would be identified with uh, dots inside the rectangle. Um, there is the intuitionistic system, strictly contained within the classical system, due to Brouwer and Hating. Note that the double negation inference, not not A, therefore A, lies outside in the no man's land. That's a strictly classical argument. It's not intuitionistically correct. But intuitionistic logic also contains A, not A, therefore B, the infamous Lewis first paradox. And the relevantist wants to avoid that. And so did Johansson with his minimal logic. However, Johansson allowed in the close relative of the um, Lewis first paradox. It could be called the negative version of the Lewis first paradox, where the conclusion has the form not be. And I submit that any relativist would regard that as uh, just as unwanted as A not A therefore B. So we need to avoid A not A therefore not B. But we want to keep disjunctive syllogism, because that is so critical for mathematical reasoning. A or B, not A for B, is a perfectly good inference. And it's excluded by Johansson's minimal logic. Core logic, therefore, is going to capture disjunctive syllogism, but it's going to avoid both the positive and the negative forms of Lewis's first paradox. And of course, it's going to be constructive, not having any of those strictly practical rules of inference governing negation. There is a way of classicizing core logic, which is to take core logic, the intuitionistic system, and add to it an, uh, something like the double negation rule, thereby getting its classical extension. So the, the red system and the blue system are two systems in contention. I shall throughout this talk really be uh, focusing on the red system. But there are many contagious things that uh, the red system exhibits that are shared by its classical extension. So, you must all be wondering what the rules of the logic are. Well, they take the form of introduction and elimination rules. And I want to submit that these rules that I'm about to present to you are the ones that Genson should have formulated when he first set up systems of natural deduction. Unfortunately, he chose um, forms of introduction and elimination rules that were not ideal for capturing uh, constructivity along with the relevance. So let me explain a rotational convention. I use this um, 
little box here appended to the discharge scope to indicate that when this rule is applied, you must have used an assumption of the form phi in order to derive absurdity in the subordinate proof. Only if you have actually used phi may you then conclude the negation of phi as the conclusion. And when you do that, as indicated by the discharge numerals, you can and must discharge all occurrences of the reductio assumption phi. This is in order to prevent the negative form of Lewis's first paradox, because you could have uh, psi, not psi, therefore absurdity, and conclude not phi. Without discharging phi, the course has not been used. But because of this requirement of no vacuous discharge, that way of proving the negative form of Lewis's first paradox is barred. Perfectly balancing this introduction rule is the elimination rule, which you're familiar with. Not phi is the major premise. True phi, complete absurdity. Now, there's a further notational convention that I want to explain to you. It has a very, very important motivation. I will use three descending dots to indicate that you are permitted to have some non-trivial proof work above the sentence in question, which features as an immediate premise for the application of the rule. In the absence of three dots, such as with this major premise, not phi, that major premise is to stand proud. It is a leaf node of the proof tree. There may not be any proof work above it. This is an unusual feature of my presentation of these rules. Let's advance now to the logical operator for conjunction. It's the usual introduction rule. You can prove phi with some non-trivial proof work, likewise prove psi with some non-trivial proof work, and conclude their conjunction phi and psi. Of course, the conclusion depends on the combined assumptions of the two subproofs for the application of the rule. Now, with and elimination, once again, the major premise is going to stand proud at bottom left. No proof work permitted above it. And what this modal uh, requirement stipulates here is that one must use either phi or psi or possibly both in order to derive theta. Upon deriving theta, you can bring it down as the main conclusion, thereby discharging all the assumption currences of phi and or of psi be used to get theta. But you must have used at least one of these. Now, of course, this form of the rule permits you to perform an and elimination in one fell swoop. If you look at the Genson private presentation of natural deduction, you would have had to have an occurrence of the major premise of each and every one of such occurrences of phi and or psi as might have been used for the derivation of theta. And in their system, of course, since they allow non-trivial proof work above the major premise, uh, not necessarily ending with an introduction, all that proof work would have to be repeated ad nauseam above the assumption occurrences of uh, these assumptions in the subordinate proof. That prolixity is avoided by having the major premise sit down here on the left have all the discharges take place in one fell swoop. 
This form of illumination was, of course, due to Pete Schroeder Heister in his Journal of Symbolic Logic paper of 1984. And um, it is very, very useful for people who do computational logic. It results in much shorter proofs being found, and of course, they are found more quickly. Now, with disjunction, we have the same old introduction rules, but the elimination rule is now importantly different. The first of these three possibilities is the old form of elimination rule that you will find in Genson or in Pravitz. And in fact, Pravitz himself went so far as to say, in effect, that you must use phi to get theta in the first case proof, and you must use psi to get theta in the second case proof, and then discharge them respectively and bring down theta as the main conclusion. Because if you were able to prove theta in one of these case proofs without making use of the relevant assumption, there would be no point in applying the or elimination rule. So Privates himself actually formulated this modal restriction on the appearance of undischarged assumptions of the subordinate proofs. What I'm doing is taking some liberties with the, the formulation of this rule in giving you two other possible patterns. The second pattern says, look, if the, if the first case proof closes off with absurdity, then the truth of the disjunction must be due to the truth of the other disjunct. And if the truth of that disjunct leads to theta, why then you may bring down theta as the conclusion. And the third possibility, of course, is the uh, symmetric thing that corresponds to that. If it is psi, which is absurd, then any consequence theta be brought down. Any consequence theta of psi, first case assumption, may be brought down as the main conclusion. <clears throat> it is this form of or elimination that allows you to prove um, A or B, not A, therefore B, disjunctive syllogism. The rule of introduction for the arrow of implication is two parts. The second part is the conventional arrow introduction of Ganson and of Kant. It says, if you've proved psi, you may conclude phi arrow psi, and you may discharge any assumption occurrences of phi on which psi might depend on the proof. Notice now that there's a diamond here to indicate possibility. You are not obliged to have used phi in getting psi, but if you have used phi, then you may discharge it. That's what is indicated by the diamond. The other half which I am permitting uses the strong form, the no vacuous discharge form of the discharge convention. It says, if you have refuted the antecedent, I mean genuinely refuted, if you have really used phi and have reduced it to absurdity, then you may conclude if phi then psi. That is what you are told by the second and fourth lines of the truth table for the arrow. Okay. Now the elimination rule for the arrow is also in parallelized form following Schroeder Heister. Again, the major premise has to be bottom left with no proof work above it. You prove the minor, which is proof of the antecedent. Then you assume the consequent, 
and head for the conclusion that you want to draw. Bring it down as the main conclusion, theta. And now discharge the assumption in the subordinate proof, the major subordinate proof, discharge psi. And you really must have used psi to get theta. Okay. Existential introduction is, as it always is, if you have proved an instance, you may conclude to the existential generalization. I'm setting aside, of course, the peculiar problems of free logic, where you may have to show that T is a denoting term. Uh, there are obviously straightforward um, free versions of this logic. I'm trying to make it as standard as possible. Existential elimination is as it always is, apart from the restriction that the major premise must stand proud as the tip of this branch proof. No proof work is allowed above it. If you have the existential premise, there is such a thing as, uh, the, the, there is something with problem phi. Uh, you're saying, let such a thing be little a, assume nothing else about little a. So it's an arbitrary phi. Conclude psi, making no mention of little a. Bring down psi as your conclusion. Discharge your parametric assumption. And by the way, you really must have used that parametric assumption. Again, Pravitz makes that. You really must have used it. Otherwise, there's no point in applying that rule. <clears throat> Universal introduction is uh, the usual rule. You have proved phi of a. They generalize up and say for all x, phi of x, provided that you use no assumptions concerning a. So a is truly arbitrary. Universal elimination takes this unusual form. It's like quantified analog of the and elimination rule. It says that um, with this major premise standing proud, you may discharge simultaneously any finite number of instantiations that were used as premises to obtain theta. The requirement is that at least one of them must have been used. That's what that box is telling you. So you bring down theta as the main conclusion, discharge all these instantiations. Your main conclusion now depends on universal. So here are some important points to note once again. The major premises for eliminations stand proud with no proof work above them. So all core proofs are in normal form. You will not have any sentence occurrence in a core proof standing as the conclusion of an introduction and at the same time, in the same place as the proof, as the major premise of the corresponding elimination. We prohibit vacuous discharge of assumptions where we have to in order to avoid irrelevance. Notice that the rules of arrow introduction and disjunction elimination have been liberalized in order to get what you need in order to have disjunctive syllogism. The rule of ex falsified is banned so that you cannot get uh, the Lewis first product. So all proofs are relevant. Now, let's just help ourselves to the single turnstile for deducibility 
on the understanding that it represents deducibility in core logic. So when you say delta turnstile phi, where delta is a set of sentences and phi is a sentence, this means that the conclusion phi is core deducible from premises that are drawn from delta. And of course, the set of premises of the proof in question may form a proper subset of delta. It's that uh, noise, kind of positive feedback noise. Okay. If I hear it again, I'll just pause for a while for it to die down. Okay, so I'll use um, a comma to indicate a conjunctive reading of premises. Now, this is the big theorem for this system. I call it cut elimination because that's what it looks like. But I would remind you that Jensen's cut elimination theorem, his Hauptsatz, talked about the eliminability of actual applications of cut within proofs, where he had a cut rule, a structural rule that could be applied within a proof. The result of the application of cut using certain subgroups was, again, a proof. We don't have anything like that in our system. But what we do have is a metaphor, the effect that if you have two proofs that look, as it were, ripe for a cut, there's the cut formula phi, the conclusion of the first proof, and a premise of the second proof. The idea is that you shouldn't be able to cut through the phi and get theta from delta union gamma. If you have two proofs like this, you can go to work on them with an effective method and extract from the combination of those two proofs a core proof, which I will indicate as um, square brackets pi sigma, the result of applying this binary uh, operation to the two input proofs. You'll have a core proof either of theta, the original sort of conclusion, or of absurdity. And the premises will a subset of delta union gamma, and it may be a proper subset. So let's just reflect on this for a moment. We're saying that you get the benefits of cut with potential epistemic gain. You will have epistemic gain if you properly subset down on the left. You will also have epistemic gain if you fail to get theta but get absurdity instead, because you will learn that your combined set of premises, delta union gamma, harbors an inconsistency. It's better for the relevantist to know that they are inconsistent than to persevere uh, under the delusion that theta really follows from the union of delta with gamma. That following from, in the classical case, the intuitive case, may be courtesy of the absurdity rule. So for the relevantist, it's not a genuine following from. So the relevantist here, call addition, has all the benefits of unrestricted cut. And where unrestricted cut fails, you have the benefit of epistemic gain. You get something better than the would-be overall result of an application of unrestricted cut. Here are some corollaries of that uh, theorem about the manipulability of two proofs. 
if you have these two deducibilities, phi from delta and psi from gamma comma phi, then either the premises are inconsistent or they give you the overall conclusion psi. We also have the result that I call cut for absurdity. If psi happens to be absurdity, then you can always cut. And on consistent premises, if um, delta is consistent and proves every member of gamma, and then gamma proves psi, why then delta proves psi? This result here is very important because it guarantees that core logic provides all the transitivity of production that you need for intuitionistic mathematics. The presumption there is that you are working with a consistent set of, of, of axioms, call them delta. So any lemmas, members of gamma, that you get from your axioms and then use in order to derive psi will give you the theorem psi from your axioms on the assumption that those axioms are consistent. The cut for absurdity result is important for uh, the adequacy of core logic as a system of inference in the hypothetical deductive testing of scientific theories. If you have uh, a prediction from your theories and the prediction clashes with the data, then you want to show that the theory does indeed clash with the data. So um, you, you have the transitivity you need for testing scientific theories. Here's a theorem about uh, how core logic contains classical logic under suitable interpretation. If you insert a double negation after every occurrence of a universal quantifier, and then put double negation in front of all the sentences that result, then in core logic, you can match what classical logic does. It is, it is the standard against the theorem. But instead of having intuitionistic logic as the, the target logic that uh, makes classical logic, we have core logic instead. Now, if you have an intuitionistic consequence, then for some subset of the premises that you use, you will either prove the conclusion that was obtained intuitionistically, or you will prove absurdity. So core logic matches intuitionistic logic on consistent sets of premises, but reveals an absurdity if that was really, as it were, behind the derivation of phi. If, if delta was absurd and therefore gave you phi, courtesy of EF2, this is going to be revealed directly within core logic. Uh, likewise, with classical logic, if you can phi from delta, then uh, for some subset of delta, either the classicized version of core logic will give you phi from gamma or give you absurdity from gamma. Okay. People often misunderstand 
the alleged failure of cut in core logic. Uh, a number of critics have gone into print about this aspect of the system. Core logic, by the way, used to be called intuitionistic relevant logic by earlier writings. I now prefer the name core logic for reasons which will emerge in due course. But these critics have um, upbraided me for the alleged loss of unrestricted transitivity of deduction. What I believe they have failed to grasp is how when the so-called failures of transitivity take place, you actually have epistemic gain because you get a tighter, stronger logical result in core logic. Working with the very proofs to which the cut is supposed to be applied. That, to my mind, is a virtue. It, it makes core logic preferable to logics with unrestricted cut, such as intuitionistic logic and classical logic. Core logic suffices for intuitionistic mathematics. We've already been through that. Anything that you can prove by way of theorem from intuitionistic axioms, you will be able to prove using core logic, the assumption that those axioms are collectively consistent. You do not need ex falso quad libet in order to do intuitionistic mathematics. Analogously, the classicized extension of core logic suffices for classical mathematics. You do not need ex falso for classical mathematics. Core logic suffices for the hypothetical deductive testing of scientific theories. If you look in detail at the shape of a reductio in uh, a refutation of an empirical theory, you will find that it can be accommodated in core logic. I want to maintain also that core logic is the logic of what I call conceptual constitution. In particular, it suffices for a neologicist derivation of number theoretic axioms from deeper logical principles that govern the operator the number of x such that phi of x, the number of phi's. Those derivations were carried out in detail in my 1987 book, Anti-Realism and Logic. Now, something I haven't remarked on uh, so far is that core logic has the following very nice property. Corresponding to the natural deduction rules, there are sequences by means of which you can construct sequence proofs. And the great thing about core logic is that the natural deductions and its sequence proofs are structurally isomorphic. If there is a trivial translation from a natural deduction in core logic into the corresponding sequence proof, and conversely. And you, you may be aware of how in Gensen this is not so. With Gensen's presentation of natural deduction and his presentation of the sequence calculus, with all those rules of uh, thinning and cut, which I don't have in the sequences, he had very complicated mappings or translations of his natural deductions to the corresponding proofs in his sequence, and vice versa. Whereas with core logic, the relationship between these two different forms of presentation is absolutely direct. An extensive study of all the reasoning involved in logical and semantic paradoxes 
reveals that core logic suffices for all that reason. There is no logical or semantic paradox in the reasoning behind which one has to use rules of inference that cannot be accommodated in core logic. I think this is very important because a paradox is supposed to reveal that there's something wrong with the concepts being employed. So you need to make sure that not some um, untrustworthy aspect of the underlying logic that is to blame. It's not because of ex falso quotiba, it's not because of any of the classical negation rules. If you, if you can reveal that the problem behind a paradox is there, using only core logic, then you know that the paradoxical problem is located in the very concepts involved in the paradox. If I had more time, I would be able to explain how there is a different route conceptually to the rules of core logic that begins with an inferential reading of the familiar truth terms for the different connectives. And you can smoothly generalize these so that they become the rules of core logic as I presented them earlier in the talk. Just an example. Take the, um, the truth table for arrow. So we will assume that the roads under A and B go TT, TF, FT, FF, rows one through four. Rows two and four tell you that the falsity of the antecedent suffices the truth of the conditional. That is reflected immediately in the first half of the arrow introduction rule that I gave earlier. Rows one and three tell you that the truth of the consequent suffices the truth of the condition. And that is reflected in the other half of arrow introduction, which allows you to go from psi to fire psi. So that, that's just one small bit of explanation of how you can generalize the inferential row-by-row row reading of the truth tables to justify the formulation of the rules of core logic. Of course, there's another way to justify them, and that is simply to observe that uh, they're all valid from the standpoint of both the intuitionist and the classicist. So there's really no justificatory burden, especially incurred by the core logician. Here is the main reason why I want now to call this system core logic. I've been engaged in a very extensive investigation of rational belief revision using what I call finite dependency network. Uh, just to give you some idea of how this works, I try to represent uh, finite belief schemes in terms of steps that are um, rational or permissible for the agent question. So you may have a step A1 through AN, therefore B. What this means is that if it's a step in the agent's belief scheme, uh, should the agent come to believe A1 through AN, then he or she would be committed by his or her own lights to believe B. Suppose that the agent does have reasons to believe A1, reasons to believe A2, and so on, 
between reasons to believe A M, and accordingly believes B. But subsequently, those reasons to disbelieve B. The agent immediately has a problem and needs to revise. She will have to conclude, I will have to give up one of the beliefs that supports A1, or I will give up one of the beliefs that supports A2, or dot dot, or I will have to give up one of the beliefs that supports AN. I hope this is clear without diagram. My point is that the reasoning at the meta level about the rational adjustments of this kind that you have to make as a rational agent trying to maintain consistency among the beliefs, trying to give preference to some recently formed belief for some belief that you had formed earlier, all that reasoning is both provided or accommodated uh, by core logic, and all of core logic is called upon in order to provide such reasoning as it may be called for. I hope that's clear. It, it, it turns out that in order to make sense of someone engaging in rational belief revision, you find that they are committed to all of core logic, but to no more. And it would be irrational to give up any of the principles of core logic. Because if you did, there would be paradigm situations in rational belief revision where you would not be in a position, having given up the principles in question, to justify the meta-level reasoning in which you were engaging in order to redistribute truth values. All this is argued in great detail in a, uh, a monograph that I've just finished writing. Um, called Changes of Mind, an essay on rational belief revision. Um, and I ought to mention also that uh, core logic at the propositional level is equipped with an automated deducer. And the decision problem for core logic is P-space complete, like that of the parent system intuitionistic logic. Well, that's